Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. Today we're talking about the novel, our second part in our discussion of Spin by Robert Charles Wilson. Now you all have passages that you found that were relevant to today's talk and this, by the way, you'll see by the end of the talk that this is uh, the end of our discussion, that this is a really very profound book with regard to political and social issues. And uh, let's get at it. What did you find? Jennifer, why don't you start? Okay. Um, this is on my page 360. Okay. 360, and of course I have the hardback, so I have to... Um, this is near the end. What chapter, what's the name of the chapter? What's the title of the chapter? By Dreams Surrounded. And it's about four or five pages in. Okay. By dreams surrounded? Yep. Four or five pages in from the... Uh, from the beginning. Oh, it's in about two pages in from the end. So two pages in from the end. Okay, that's my page. And what does it um, start with? This is right after a break. Um, It's something near miraculous. The first words are? Something near miraculous. Something. Oh, I see it. Okay, that's my page 291. And your page again is? 360. 360. Okay, Um, great. And this is uh, right after the spin has seemingly disappeared and... Um, there are threats that the sun has now aged to a point where it is dangerous to be. Okay, yeah. Honored. So this is this is where the spin has been seems to have gone away for a while. Um, and, ag- and again, the spin is the shield that the uh, hypothetical extraterrestrials right. erected over the planet. Okay. Um, Something near miraculous happened in the eastbound lanes of the highway that morning. Many people behaved badly in what they believed to be their final hours. It was as if the flickers had merely a rehearsal for this less arguable doom. All of us had heard the predictions. Forests ablaze, searing heat, the seas turned to scalding live steam. The only could take a day, a week, a month. And so we broke windows and took what appealed to us. Any trinket life had denied us. Men attempted to rape women, some discovering that the loss of inhibition worked both ways. The the intended victim, endowed by the same events with unexpected powers of eye-gouging and testicle crushing. Old scores were settled by gunshot, and guns were fired on a whim. The suicides were legion. I thought of Molly. If she hadn't died in the first flicker, she was almost certainly dead now. Might even have died pleased at the logical unfolding of her logical plan which made me want to cry for her for the first time in my life. But there were islands of civility and acts of heroic kindness, too. Interstate 10 at the Arizona border was one of them. During the flicker, there had been a National Guard detachment stationed at the bridge that crossed the Colorado River. The soldiers had disappeared shortly after the flicker ended, recalled, perhaps, or just AWOL, headed for home. Without them, the bridge could have become a a tangled, impassable bottleneck. 
but it wasn't. Traffic flowed at a gentle pace in both directions. A dozen civilians, self-appointed volunteers with heavy-duty flashlights and flares out of their trunk emergency kits, had taken on the work of directing traffic. And even the terminally eager, the folks who wanted or needed to travel a long way before dawn to reach New Mexico, Texas, maybe even Louisiana, if their engines didn't melt first, seemed to understand that this was necessary, that no attempt to jump the line could possibly succeed, and that patience was the only resource. recourse. I don't know how long this mood lasted or what confluence of goodwill and circumstance created it. Maybe it was human kindness, or maybe it was the weather. In spite of the doom roaring towards us out of the east, the night was perversely nice. Scattered stars in a clear, cool sky, a quickening breeze that carried off the stench of exhaust and came in the car window, gentle as a mother's touch. That's a great passage. What do you think? Um, well, I, just, I thought that that was sort of an interesting look at both sides of um, what people do in panic and in um, in dire emergency and um, and had both the um, the people who took advantage of the situation and it reminded me a lot of the people who looted right after Katrina um, and who you know just this terrible situation decided to steal HDTVs um, but then also that somehow people can come together even in times of their worst need. Um, and it's sort of an interesting look at how society comes together without government in, in anarchy. You know, that's very interesting. You have the simultaneous idea of what happens when the facts on the ground suddenly change and people go bonkers. It also was like what happened with the looting and the rioting that occurred, mostly the looting, right after the invasion of Iraq and, and all of the historical, all of the treasures of Iraq were looted. And remember, Donald Rumsfeld said something like, oh, that's just, you know, freedom. <laughs> freedom of, you know, the appropriate response would have been all looters would be shot on sight, probably. Uh, in order to keep, you know, the understanding that America was there to protect the Iraqi future, not just let it be trashed. But anyway, you know, that's history done. But, uh, and that was, of course, in a wartime situation. In a situation like Katrina, you can't go shooting looters on site, but, you know, that's a good, that's a good point. So you have a contrast here between what happens on the facts on the ground change and the other thing you were raising is what happens when information changes. So people are reacting here to two different things. Um, they're reacting here to information that they think is different versus facts on the ground. What's the facts on the ground? What are the facts that they're reacting to? Well, the spin, right? The fact that the spin has gone away, has, has something's happened to the spin that sort of people think end times are here. Um, but it's not just the facts on the ground they're reacting to. They're reacting also to information. Information that they think is there, such as looks like the spin has changed. So it's both, it's getting a little warmer, and B, the spin looks like it has changed, sort of information. So people react to both facts on the ground physical temperature changes, as well as information. 
And that's always an interesting thing. Sometimes we group those two things together as if they're the same. What lessons can you draw from this passage? I think it kind of um, like speaks to the fact that the government is somewhat justified in controlling the, um, you know, the information that the public receives because um, of the way the public can react, like the looting and the rioting. Although there are people who react with um, benevolence, like you see at the end, but it seems like the vast majority, like um, you know, assume it's the end of the world and might as well do what I want. So. Mm. That's a good point. Now you're reading it in the way of saying that the government would be justified in holding things back. That's interesting, Joshua. What do you think? I can see how. Like you would say that just because if there is a lot of disorder, it's obviously resulting from the information that they have. A little clearer, a little louder. Um, but at the same time, like there was benevolence that came out of it. But in any situation that I can think of where this kind of thing happens, there's never just people doing bad things or people just doing good things. You know, they're always both. Yeah. You always get that combination of good and bad in all of these situations. You know, it's certainly portraying the idea that people go bonkers. And in the situation of either information or facts on the ground when those things change. It's an interesting thought to think that this common understanding that this is the way people will react in all similar types of situations is a justification for the government holding information back. Is this a self-fulfilling prophecy? If you constantly hold information back from people, aren't you allowing the final impact when the information finally does come to be so powerful that it causes this reaction. Aren't you, in fact, creating this reaction by holding the information back for so long? So people, when it eventually sees something, they panic. Whereas if the information was a constant stream from the beginning of the ideas and on, it wouldn't be so panicky when things actually happen. So in one sense, Carolyn, you're right. You can interpret this as saying, this is the justification for the why the government should not reveal things to the public. On the other hand, maybe you can think of this as the consequences of what happens when the government holds things back from the public. That the disarray is because the public is not prepared for the change. They're, they're caught by surprise because... They're totally clueless about the reality because the information hasn't been filtering into them fast enough over the years. Isn't it interesting? So in one sense, you could say, let's hold the information back longer. Look what happens when people go bonkers. On the other hand, you can say, no, the longer you hold it back, the more people will go bonkers. Let it out as fast as you possibly can under a metered manner. Interesting. I also think it goes back to the public, um, you know, wanting not to know this stuff. You know, like we were talking about the other day, they don't want to know this. They want to um, 
remain ignorant until the end so that they can live on with their lives. So it's easy for politicians to and for governmental people, non-political governmental people, such as bureaucratic and military people, to satisfy those needs of not wanting to grow. But is it useful? The real question. Well, I think we can say is when you do hold information back from the people, when sudden change occurs, either on the level of information or facts on the ground, people do go bonkers. So I think the, the, the point you want to question, not maybe make, but question is, is it better to make the informational change as smooth as possible? Which means don't hold back as much, but constantly push the envelope, get as much information out into the public as can possibly be gotten before getting panic. But very often you'll find the governments do the opposite, hold as much information back for fear of panic, and then they'll say, oh, but we are letting something out. But the trickle is so small, it's a drop in the bucket. And then eventually you do get significant disarray. It's a real interesting question. But this passage is so great. I'm so glad you did it. You picked it, Jennifer. Because it raises the very question. Is, is this the public we're dealing with? Is this the best we can get? All right. Who has the next passage? Two sixteen on your paperback, and let me see, what chapter? What what is the name of the chapter? It's right before four hundred ten to the ninth AD. It's right before. It's in chapter four photographs of the. Um, Say it again. Four photographs of the Kyrielos Four photographs. And Wait a second, is it in that chapter or before? It's in that chapter, and it's two pages from the end. Okay, two pages from the end of that chapter. And what does it start with? Jason side. Jason side. Is that the beginning of a paragraph? Yes. What's that? Yes. Oh, I see. All right. That would be page 177 of my hardback version. And uh, why don't you just tell us the context for this? Jason is having a conversation about his dad, E.D., and some of his, um, some of the problems that E.D. is facing. Jason sighed. This might sound cruel, but E.D. doesn't understand that his time has come and gone. My father is exactly what the world needed 20 years ago. I admire him for that. He's accomplished amazing, unbelievable things. Without E.D. to light fires under, under the politicians, there, would be, there never would have been a perihelion. One of the ironies of the spin is that the long-term consequences of E.D. Lawton's genius have come back to bite him. If E.D. had never existed, one when would not, wouldn't exist. I'm not engaged in some edible struggle here. I know exactly what my father is and what he's done. He's at home in the corridors of power. Garland is his golf buddy. Great, but he's a prisoner too. 
a prisoner of his own short-sightedness, short-sightedness. His days as a visionary are over. He dislikes Wynn's plan because he distrusts the technology. He doesn't like anything he can't reverse engineer. He doesn't like the fact that the Martians can wield technologies we're only beginning to guess at. And he hates the fact that Wynn has me on his side. Me and Don, my dad, a new generation of DC power brokers, including Preston Lomax, who's likely to be the next president. Suddenly, ED is surrounded by people he can't manipulate. Younger people, people who assimilated the spin in the way Evie's generation never did. People like us type. Okay, what about this? I thought this was really interesting just because it talks about, from Jason, his son's perspective, how E.D. was great and what we needed when he, when he was in power, and that now he fears technology and he just lost track of the time he didn't progress forward and um, when I read that I just kind of compared that to um, Bush 1 and then current Bush 2 like um, not necessarily that the first Bush was like, what we needed during the time but then George W. Bush, for some reason, a lot of people feel like he needs to fulfill this legacy or continue something that his dad started. And while I'm not sure that I completely agree with that, I thought that was kind of an interesting. It's interesting. That you're seeing here also. Yeah. But what else, what do some of the other people think about this paragraph? It's a fascinating passage. Um, I thought it was really interesting after you were talking earlier about um, uh, your, uh, your book about. Um, Differential. Different. I have a, a a book on a new book on differential equations. Yeah. Um, and uh, that some of the older mathematicians needed the the equations that were simple that they could work out and, and unwork, um, and didn't like to rely on the ones that were more complicated that you had to use a computer because you couldn't you couldn't see the workings. You just had to trust that the computer was doing yeah. it. And I thought that like that. This section applies to so much of math and science because, especially with the computer and, and um, technology continuously evolving, um, that this sort of mirrors that how people get left behind and get really frustrated that they can't see everything that's going on. That's an interesting observation. This, of course, goes to Max Planck. Max Planck said the great changes in physics occur not because someone comes up with a new idea and says, Wow, that's really cool, that's good. It comes about because of generational change. People who are introduced to ideas when they're young in graduate school get fixed with those ideas, and they basically stick with those ideas. And they have to wait until the people 40 and 50 and 60 years old literally retire and die off because those people hold to the ideas that they learned when they were in graduate school. And so it takes a solid generation before new revolutionary ideas actually sink in and get accepted by the mainstream physics. And then the people who are were graduate students and then became eventually 40, 50 years old, then they become the dominant paradigm. They become the idea, the idea holders for the dominant paradigm. But again, that means that they're obsolete as well, meaning you're always getting obsolescence from the dominant power holders because the dominant power holders are holding on to ideas that were that they were introduced to when they were graduate students, and that's when the ideas were new. So we really have to look at what the 
you have to look what's under the radar to find out what's the latest and the greatest. You find to have to find out what's going on in the laboratories of a lot of young people. Well, and your point about differential equations is interesting too, because by the way, and, and that was um, that was the controversy with the use of numerical methods to solve differential equations versus the use of explicit methods for the solutions of differential equations. The uh, the new modern way to solve differential equations is numerically because it works with nonlinear as well as linear differential equations of, of virtually any complexity, whereas the old methods where you have came up with an explicit solution for the differential equations really work with simple models, uh, linear equations, models that are much more restricted. And so the special tricks that you use for explicit solutions, obtaining explicit solutions for the differential equations are much less useful in the current context. But again, it's a generational divide. Uh, the older mathematicians, not all by any means, but in general, the older mathematicians who were raised with the traditional methods of finding explicit solutions generally tend to hold to those methods. And uh, the newer generation of mathematicians often say, hey, look, these computers are fast. They can solve any equation we need. And we don't need to worry about all those special tricks as much as we used to. So there's a, um, a generational change battle that's going on. And it will change again as the numerical methods and, and other ideas about working with differential equations uh, come about as the technology changes, and that's yeah, that is what they're talking about. This also has effects with uh, politics. Right now, the Republican Party is struggling with the ideas of what it means to be a conservative, and the basic idea of what it means to be a conservative from the dominant paradigm that goes back to an older generation is government is bad you got to get government off your back and lower taxes. But historically speaking, taxes are really rock bottom right now. <coughs> People in the country are not thinking that government's on their back. It's not as big as, at all, as, as it was in the past. The time when people were complaining about government being too big and tax rates being too high was during the Reagan years. But that was way back in the 1980s. So, you know, that's a whole lot of change has gone on since then. And so now the big struggle that's going on in the Republican Party is whether they should be talking about the new ideas. The new ideas like global warming, environmentalism, coming up with new ideas with regard to that. And remember, we also talked earlier about the generational change that's occurring within the evangelical community, which has been saying we should be pushing politics for the traditional venues, or traditional ideas, prayer in school, anti-abortion, stuff like that. And then the new generation of evangelicals is saying, no, let's, let's not be single-issue people. We're complex people like everybody else. God is complex as well. Let's talk about the more broad issues as well. Let's talk about global warming as well, meaning they're not concerned about narrowness as they are concerned about completeness. And it's a generational divide within the political evangelical community. So that's a very common thing, and it will affect all of you, no matter what field you go into in graduate school. You're going to find that you're up against, you're going to come up with new ideas, and you're going to be confronting older people that are, some of whom are going to be opposed to those ideas. And your, your, your job 
is to battle them to death <laughs> until, until you replace them. And you're guaranteed to win because they're going to die off. And you'll replace them. And then the young graduate students that will take your place when you become 40 and 50 years old, their job is going to be to knock you guys off with their new ideas. That's a very interesting uh, topic. Okay, Carolyn, did you come up with the passage? Okay. It's, um, what chapter is that? What's the name of the chapter? It is uh, Home Before Dark. Home Before Dark. Yeah, it's pretty far in. It's about like one, two, three, four pages before the end. Of the book? Of the um, next chapter. Oh, I see. Okay, so you're on 340. All right, so home before dark. Hold on, I'll find it here. Unfortunately, they don't have a table of contents in my version. It just starts. There it is. I found it. And it's 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 how many pages in from the end? Um, about four. And what's the what's the first line? Um, it's to what end, though, Jace? To what end? Yeah, um, Tyler's speaking. Tyler and Jason are talking. Okay. There should be, like, three dots really close to it, too. You know how they do a little transition thing? Yeah, some ellipses. Um, what's the first line of the transition? After the three dots. Uh, the flicker. Oh, all right. And then go up, and there's two at end chains. I go. You go up, not down. Yeah, go up. You know, um, I'm talking about like those things. Yeah. And it's like up here. So all right, and it starts with two what end? Yeah. Well, I found the flicker happens a few months later. That's the one you're talking about, right? No, the flicker came back the following winter. Oh, I see. Okay. To an end, though, Jace. Okay, yeah. I have it. That's on my page 274 in the hardback version. Okay. Okay. Oh, we want to tell us the context? Yeah, um, Jason and Tyler are talking about, like, um, why he wants to, you know, know stuff about the hypotheticals of, okay. you know, the world's ending. Yeah. All right, so they're, they're trying to use that technology to find out about the hypotheticals. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. To what end, though, Jace? Too soon to say, but I don't believe in the futility of knowledge. Even if we're dying, everyone dies. I mean, as a species. That remains to be seen. Whatever the spin is, it has to be more than just a, a sort of elaborate global euthanasia. The hypotheticals must be acting with a purpose. Maybe so, but this, I realized, was... The faith that had deserted me, the faith in fake salvation. All the brands and flavors of fake salvation. At the last minute, we would devise a technological fix and save ourselves, or the hypotheticals were benevolent beings who would turn the planet into a peaceful kingdom, or God would rescue us all, or at the last, the true believers among us, or, 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 the big salvation. It was a honey pie, a paper lifeboat. Even if we were killing ourselves trying to cling to it, 
It wasn't the spin that had mutilated my generation. It was the lure and price of big salvation. Well, what do you see in this passage? Well, to me, this is, um, like, out of the whole book, this is probably the um, most potent message because um, it speaks to the fact that most people, you know, don't want to work um, for the, you know, their lives themselves. They want something else to save them. And, oh, I see. Um, I just think you see a lot of that now with the people going to churches. It isn't people going to churches because they really believe in God and all that. It's people going to church because they want something else to save them from everything that's going on. And we were talking about this the other day with um, 9-11 and all that. So you've got hmm. like, the um, larger number of people going to church now because of that. Ah, very interesting. You know, I didn't quite get it when you, I was when, I, when you were reading the the passage. I was saying, now, when the world, how is this connected to politics? And I didn't get it myself. But you're bringing out a really interesting point. All the brands and flavors of big salvation. You're pointing to the idea that there's a general passivity on the part of most people and that most people look at life in terms of salvation meaning somebody is going to come and save the day and they have to simply interpret life in terms of this is the big salvation you know in the early christian movement there was a pbs special that's been going on for the last few days saying that peter and paul originally were um, preaching that the second coming was like going to happen next week. The end of the world is coming next week. The second coming was coming next week and uh, people had to be converted now or before it was too late. And then when it never happened, they have to, they have to, they had to shift. They had to shift their story and say, you know, you know, it will happen only after there's been enough time for everyone to hear and so on. So it seems to be a characteristic of human nature. The idea of salvation, the big salvation, that there's always going to be somebody. And if there was actual a group of people out there that were looking at us from the outside and trying to make us go forward as a species, and they saw all of us looking down here, all of us down here looking up and saying, when are you going to come save us? And all of them up there looking down and say, when are they going to get their act together and save their butts? It's a very interesting thing where everybody's looking at each other. Ultimately, it would ultimately boil down to not when is someone going to save us, but when are we going to save ourselves? So it's the self-generators, the self-movers, the self-starters that actually do things and perhaps the force of evolution is the perhaps the force of, of evolution is getting people over the millions of years to become self-starters maybe winning the battle is changing from a waiting for the big salvation time to becoming a person that saves oneself does it oneself we have just a, a few minutes left let me let me bring in some aspect of the general overview the novel talks about the hypotheticals. What were the hypotheticals trying to do? What was the ultimate goal? What was the whole spin about? Why did the spin exist? 
preserve biological life in the universe and keep people going and connect the worlds. Yeah, these hypotheticals, which apparently were a artificially created life force to begin with, were spreading throughout the galaxy, and they were seeing civilizations snuff themselves out exactly when they just about when they got to the peak. And the reason this speaks to our current society is we're at a time when we could be snuffing ourselves out. This is what Stephen Hawking has been talking about. This is what a lot of people have been talking about. We have now the capabilities that we've never had before to extinguish our own civilization through global warming and other environmental problems, terrorism, bioterrorism, all types of things. We have the possibility, we have the capabilities to do that. And this, these hypothetical ET, extraterrestrial, extraterrestrials, over the, over, the, over the billions of years, have witnessed one civilization after the next reach intelligence and snuff itself out. So what they wanted to do is to say, we need to preserve these these, in, these civilizations so that they can get past that juggernaut in their evolution when they have the capability to extinguish themselves. We need to get, pa- get them past that so that they can survive. So they had to devise a way to link up the various worlds through space portals. That would be, that would be, and then of course, that's what they did at the very end of the novel. They put a space portal on the planet Earth, which is why the spin had dimmed down a little bit, so they could put the space portal onto the planet, get it through the the spin membrane. And so, in a sense, it took them all that, all those millions of years, in order to get the space portal organized, so you can link up the various worlds. And thus, I'll have those civilizations, you know, live past the moment of their normal extinction. Doesn't that strike you as interesting? Somebody tried to save us from ourselves. Um, What do we do sort of like that? Novels typically have aspects of themselves that you already can see reflections of in our own society. What do we humans do that are like what the hypotheticals have done? Well, to me, it, it reminds me of um, the United States playing, um, you know, Big Brother, whatever you want to call it, to all the um, up-and-coming countries. Like, with um, people talk about that with Vietnam and Iraq, the United States coming in. Very interesting. Interesting with respect to Iraq. We invaded the country to save them. Actually, we invaded the country to steal their oil. But, you know, (laughs) but the party line is we invaded the country to save them, and now they're a mess. Uh, Similarly, we've tried to invade some other places in order to save them. Sometimes we did a good idea, a good thing, Bosnia, and so on like that. Other times we made a mess, uh, or what was already a mess, just we didn't improve it, such as Somalia. But also, think of species. Zoos. Sometimes we save animals by putting them in zoos. We capture them. The animals are very opposed to being captured. They don't like being put in caves, in cages. And Willie B, the great gorilla that used to live downtown in the zoo Atlanta, who died of old age, for like 18 years he was kept incarcerated in this very small prison, a cage, literally like a jail cell, in solitary confinement. And finally they decided to build him a habitat and bring other gorillas in. And they made an area that was like trees in it, big, 
and brought some other gorillas in. And Willie B, after the first, after 18 years of solitary confinement, had to confront his first female gorilla. And they wondered what would happen, whether he would, you know, kill it. to, to everyone's great surprise, the female gorilla promptly went over and beat him up. <laughs> he didn't know what to do. <laughs> so the point is, um, we humans do this type of thing all the time. We intervene. And the interesting thing is sometimes when somebody comes in to intervene, the people that you're trying to save rebel. They don't understand it. They, My son has a parakeet. Sometimes when you're trying to take the parakeet, put it in the cage so it doesn't fly out the door and get exposed to the to the winter and die within days. You know, The parakeet struggles, doesn't like to be caught and held in the, in the arms and so on. And, and it raises the whole issue of here we are as humanity thinking how dare the hypotheticals do this to us and is it good? And it raises the question is, when is it ever really justified to intervene in someone's fate? And, and we, don't, we don't have any time right now, but one question I would like to ask you to think about. When is it justified to intervene in someone's destiny? Do people have the right to perish? Do species have the right to perish? When is it really justified for us to intervene in someone else's destiny? Because we think it's better for them. That's what this novel ultimately comes out at. That's the most profound aspect of this novel. Because we intervene so often. When is it right that we should intervene with Iraq? When is it right that we should intervene with other places? Actually, I think it would make a very good connection to like the Terry Schiavo story and all that. The Terry Schiavo court. That's a, excellent. Now that's a place for... That's something to write about. Yeah, uh, when is it appropriate for us to intervene when Terry Schiavo is trying to die? And that's a good point. That's an excellent point. It's, you, you get the idea? It raises that very profound issue. And we do this all the time. We like messing with other people's lives. Okay, well look, we're starting next week The Gods Themselves by Isaac Asimov. Have it all read by, or have it read by, you know, most of it, two-thirds of it read by Tuesday, okay? See you then.